Hey, welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. G'day. This is Carl Franklin. <laughs> and this is Richard Morris. <laughs> yeah. Happy, happy, happy days. Well. Happy second podcast in a long, long, long time off. Long, long time. <laughs> so today we're talking about Ozempic and Wegovy and I don't even know how to pronounce that drug, but. Semaglutide is what it really is. Semaglutide. Yeah. The active ingredient. Mm -hmm. All right. So, how do you want to start this? Well, an article came out saying that this drug is finally approved for weight loss. It's been used for type 2 diabetes. And what happened was that, similar to the story about erythritol, everybody went crazy. Uh -huh. There was, um, uh, in Australia, people were um, get, asking their doctors to say they were diabetic when they weren't so they could get a prescription. Oh, uh, wow. Um, because all of our drugs are, are paid for by the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. So, um, yeah, I think people pay, you know, $10 a week or something for, for drugs like this. So, uh -huh. um, so everybody wanted to get access to it. And, uh, you, you saw a, a PBS article about this, didn't you? Yeah. And I linked to it. Mm -hmm. It's, um, basically saying that these drugs, what work, but here's what happens if you can't afford to keep taking the drug. So right. from what I understand in America anyway, if mm -hmm. you have type two diabetes, your insurance company is likely to cover it. Cool. And so your out of pocket costs could be fifty to sixty five bucks a week. Mm -hmm. If you have to pay for it yourself, it could be a thousand or more a week. Wow. And so people who have obesity but aren't type two diabetic First of all, there's a shortage of Ozempic. Yeah. So they're not likely to get it anyway. Right. But if they get it, their insurance company is not likely to cover it. Right. Because I, I don't know why. And one of the PBS commenters uh, or interviewers that I was listening to an article, it wasn't this one, hmm. but they said maybe the insurance companies aren't covering it for obesity because they feel that obesity is a problem that people bring on themselves. Oh, don't you love that? Yeah. This was just a, a throwaway comment from the interviewer yeah. uh, on a on an episode. And I don't have that episode of, or the show that I heard it on, but but it just kind of speaks to you know, that's where they went in their mind, why yeah. insurance companies aren't covering it for obesity, but they are for type 2 diabetes. Yeah, it's it's this weird thing that uh, humans are, na are naturally empathetic. We understand what other people are going through by thinking, what would it be like if it was us? Generally, we don't like seeing horrible things happen to good people. Right. And diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is one of the worst ways to die because you don't die in one piece. Uh -huh. uh, I had a... I have a friend who lost a mother uh, a couple of days ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And it was a horrible thing because she found out she was diabetic when she seared her foot and didn't feel it. Oh, my God. And she went to the doctor and said, you know, I burned my foot badly and I didn't feel this. And the doctor said, well, I guess we should test if you're diabetic. And then they finally did her first ever test ah. for high blood glucose. And, of course, she was frank type 2 diabetic out of the gate. Most people, if they've got a physician who's doing annual blood work, probably know a good five years before that. And yeah. those of us who get tested for insulin actually will know 10, 15 years before that right. actually happens. But she lost a, a foot below the knee, uh. and then she got bone sepsis, and they were talking about removing her foot above the knee, um, and, uh, and then she, she 
passed away with kidney disease. Yeah. And it's a horrible, horrible way to go. Your body basically rots from the inside out. From the outside in, yeah. Mm. It's a horrible way. You know, you could go blind before you die. You could Ah. get dementia before you die. You could uh, die without limbs, without, uh, with, with, you know, with a kidney, transplanted kidney. It's, Mm. I mean, it really is a horrible, horrible way to die. And as humans, we're empathetic and it is almost impossible to reconcile horrible things happening to good people in a moral universe. Oh, yeah, sure. So the way we rationalize this, and it's not fair, but it's, it's, a, it's a human thing. We, the way we rationalize this is by saying, well, you know, maybe they weren't good people. Right. Maybe there's something there they did to themselves. Maybe just gluttony and sloth. Maybe they should just stop eating and mm. get off the couch. And you hear this a lot. And it, 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 people say this about uh, uh, obese people as well. Yeah. Well, that's what I heard from this NPR interviewer. It triggers me. It's frustrating. The thing about Ozempic is that it's the new rage. I mean, Hollywood's using it. Silicon Valley's using it. Right. Elon. That's how Elon Musk got so thin. You know, he's taking his MPIC. You know, it's it's very effective at reducing obesity, particularly in diabetics, because obesity and diabetes go hand in hand. They're both caused by the same thing. They're not caused one by the other. Diabetes doesn't cause obesity, and obesity doesn't cause diabetes. But hyperinsulinemia and compensatory uh, insulin resistance uh, is what's causing both of those. It's frustrating, but unfortunately, obesity and diabetes go hand in hand, and people think, well, you know, they, they, they're, it's natural for doctors to think, well, do, do, obesity must cause diabetes because I've been seeing this person for 10 years. I've been getting fatter and fatter, right. and then they came with diabetes. So obviously, one happened before the other, so therefore, right. obesity causes diabetes. I mean, if you're a doctor, you'd think the same thing, but uh, that's not how the biochemistry works. So this is the first time our listeners are going to know this, and anybody will know this, but I've actually been on Ozempic for a few months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has worked for me. I had a problem getting back in the swing, you know, after, well, it's been a few years, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I found that this reduces hunger, makes me feel full for longer. So how it works is, my doctor told me this, that normal insulin response to food is to go up quickly in the presence of glucose Mm -hmm. and then shunt that glucose into fat cells and then come down. Mm -hmm. And those with insulin resistance, it goes up, shunts the glucose into fat cells and stays up and comes down very slowly. And so let's say if the average insulin response of uh, an insulin resistant person is five out of 10, let's just say it goes up by half. What Ozempic does is it raises it up to like seven or eight, yeah, but then brings it down quickly afterwards. So you have an, a bigger insulin spike, but then the insulin comes down like normal non-insulin resistant people do after the glucose or whatever gets handled. And another effect it has is it it slows digestion in the lower intestine, is it? I think it's a claim that it slows emptying of the stomach. Yeah. So your stomach feels full longer? You feel fuller longer, yeah. That's yeah. the effect of it. Yeah. So it's a that's a double whammy that it does. Mm. And it has really helped me. I've lost weight. Yeah. My sugar has come down to normal levels. It, it really did work. And I know I talked to you about it when I was going on it. Yeah. And you were like, oh, let me check this out. 
And I think this is when you first realize, oh my God, this is going to raise his insulin. I'm not so sure I like this. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things that your doctor told you aren't precisely correct. Okay. Glucose is mainly cleared by the liver and muscle cells. Fat cells essentially clear fat that's in the meal and also made by other cells. But the other thing is that it's not so much that semaglutide causes insulin to come down. Well, I'll talk about the mechanism of action as I understand it, but um, okay. But essentially what it does is it causes glucose. The, the reason insulin stays up after a meal is because your muscle cells aren't clearing glucose. Okay. Your peripheral cells, it's not just muscles, but it's it's all, all cells that aren't really organs. Are mm. clear, the major, they do the majority of the clearing of glucose. When insulin goes up, it basically tells receptors on those cells to take up glucose. And if they won't take up glucose, the pancreas keeps pumping out insulin. So that's why it stays up for longer. Okay. All right. I see. And so it's, it's the ability to get cells to clear glucose. If you can get glucose to disappear, if you could wave a magic wand and have glucose disappear, even in a type 2 diabetic, insulin would drop. Okay. I, uh, by the way, I may have got that wrong. Um, this is just what I remember him telling me. I've heard it from other people. But now that you mention it, I do remember from the years that we've done two keto dudes and talked about the insulin mechanism. Yeah, that is exactly yeah. how it works. Yeah, so I, I've heard that, that exact thing mentioned by well-known doctors in the keto space, oh, okay. well-known doctors outside the keto space. So so yeah. I fully I fully believe that your doctor said, yeah, it, it causes insulin to come down and it causes... Uh, their stomach to empty slower. Okay. That's actually not precisely how it works. I mean, doctors have this idea that the ability to determine how much how much food we're eating is all about the filling of the stomach. And that's why mm. it appears, I mean, it, it, it probably appears that you feel less hungry for longer. Mm. There's a reason behind that that it has nothing to do with the stomach emptying. Okay. It's the ability to taste the food coming in in our gut to work, to calculate how much fuel is in that food okay. that makes a difference with hunger. But I guess the, the, the question about semaglutide is, will it reduce obesity and, and treat diabetic glucose control? And, and my understanding of it is it, it actually does both of those things. Wow. Um, and, uh, and both of those are symptoms of metabolic syndrome. So you would think it's, it's a good thing for treating people with metabolic syndrome. But, it, it, you know, to that, I would say yes and no and absolutely not because I mean, that anything that reduces morbid obesity is a good thing as long as it doesn't introduce other problems. Sure. And that's the first problem is that semaglutide uh, also lowers HDL cholesterol. Oh. Um, so, and that's one of the hallmarks of metabolic syndrome is lower HDL cholesterol. So, Isn't that interesting? It's not treating the syndrome. It's treating two of its five diagnostic symptoms. And so, um, and it's making one of them worse. Right. I guess that, you know, a low-carb diet treats all five of those metabolic syndrome diagnostic symptoms. Uh, Maybe I should talk a little bit about what semaglutide is and how it works. Yeah, let's do that. So the way it works is that it's a synthetic version of a hormone that we naturally make called GLP-1. It's got a similar shape, molecular shape, that triggers the same hormone receptors that GLP-1 triggers. Now, we make GLP-1 in just the first couple of minutes of beginning a meal, and the hormone initiates a series of actions that in the gut to prepare for digesting the meal. So the first thing it does is it increases by just a little bit the amount of insulin that the pancreas is creating. So it does that as the minute that your body notices any food coming in. Yeah. So it's like you, it's like a running start 
to the race. Okay. Rather than having to start insulin from zero, it starts a little bit there just in case. You know, there's food incoming. We It might have some glucose, um, you know, so make a little insulin just in case. And after a few minutes, the pancreas can see for itself how much glucose is entering circulation and, it, and its own glucose sensors can take over control of that so that probably gives you a hint of the duration of glp1 signal it it, it, glp1 is fully degraded after just a few minutes by an enzyme designed to make it a short-term signal so it's a so it's a short-term signal basically saying start priming the system because there's food coming in and the second action is uh to switch off hunger cues because it doesn't make sense to be hungry while you are eating a meal okay does it do that with leptin? Uh, no, no. It, 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 the, 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 what it, it, leptin is your fat, fat cell saying uh, we have plenty of energy or we don't have plenty of energy. Okay. But GLP-1 is basically a signal to the rest of the, the body saying turn off the hunger signals because there's, we're eating a meal. We're eating, yeah. Right now we're eating a meal. It doesn't make any sense to start thinking about where I'm going to get the next meal from until we worked out what's in this one. Okay. So at the point when you put food in your mouth, the gut has no idea how much energy is in that meal yet. Right. Or how much fuel, fuel I should say, Mm. fuel being potential energy. Right. So once the small intestine starts absorbing the food and starting the process of digestion, then it can work out how much energy is in there. There'll be an increase of energy coming from that digestion and then other systems can take over to blunt hunger. And only after a meal is fully digested can we begin to, again, pay attention to the signal. Um, uh, nope, not enough energy. I need some more. So, right. so it's that, um, mechanism well after a meal is finished before we need to start feeling hunger again. But it's in the first two minutes that GLP one has this role and other yeah. systems take over. You know, once there's there's fuel coming in, okay. I wouldn't be surprised if there were like thousands of other things that GLP one does that we don't know about that rely on it being in circulation for just you know after starting a meal for like two to ten minutes. The difference between the GLP one that we make, the natural hormone that we make, and semaglutide is bec- is that semaglutide is what you call a, a GLP one agonist. That is, it 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 triggers the same receptors that GLP-1 does, but it's not quite the same shape. It's kind of the same shape where it docks with the receptor, but the whole molecule itself is a slightly different shape. And the enzyme that degrades GLP-1, that takes it out of circulation after two minutes, doesn't work so well on semaglutide. So it takes like two weeks to degrade it. Wow. So what it means is that if you're taking semaglutide, you're getting a signal that was evolutionarily conserved to last for two minutes at the beginning of a meal, you're getting that for two weeks, and then if wow. you take another injection, you stay in that state. Yeah, you take an injection every week, basically. It's every week? Okay. Rosemblick, yeah. I think it's like two weeks that, that takes to, to degrade to half the, okay. the, the half-life in the body. So the idea is that they want to keep a steady stream of semaglutide in your blood. Yeah. For, you know, and every week you, you up it so that it stays... At a normal level, supposedly, you know, it stays high enough for it to do its job. Yeah. I mean, the, the drug puts puts you in a state that your species evolved to be in for two minutes for weeks. So yeah. um, it does, it reduces weight by switching off hunger. Mm. So that important time of the two minute signal, it's stretching that out for two weeks. Right. But it doesn't increase uh, oxidation of fatty acids. And GLP-1 does that? No, it doesn't. Uh, GLP-1 doesn't either. And the reason okay. why is because they both increase insulin. And when you have high level of insulin, you've got inhibition of 
transport of fatty acids into the right. mitochondria. Right. And you've got, you clear glucose a lot better because all of a sudden you're getting just that little, little bit at right at the beginning when there's, there's no glucose around. You're getting mm-hmm. like a prime pump, like a little bit of insulin to start off with. Mm-hmm. That's with GLP-1. With semaglutide, you've got that essentially your lows, your insulin lows, if you think of insulin as a, as a tide ebbing and flowing, uh-huh. Uh, your your ebbs are higher than they would be without the drug. That said, yeah, my experience has been that uh, if I have a meal like around three or four o'clock in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and that is you know my only meal for the day, and I come back the next day and I check my blood and ketones before the next meal about the same time, mm-hmm. my blood average is a hundred and my mm-hmm. ketones average point five. Right, so. Clearly, ketosis is working. Yeah, ketones can be a rough proxy for insulin. Uh-huh. It's hard to make ketones when insulin is really high. Uh-huh. And so, but but what we're talking about here is you're just about to start a meal uh-huh. and you've got that higher low level of insulin. Uh-huh. Maybe your ketones would have been slightly higher otherwise, but you're obviously burning fat. Right. But the question that I have, I mean, my long-term concern is that if you are raising that lower level of insulin all the time, my concern is that to the degree that it inhibits fatty acid oxidation and to the degree that for the rest of the day that you're not eating, yeah. so you don't, you have no glucose and you have no protein coming in in the diet, the degree that you're inhibiting fatty acid oxidation means that your cells have to go elsewhere for energy. Oh. Uh, not for 100% of their energy. Maybe it's just for 2% of their energy. But So you're thinking like the same thing that happens with non-keto caloric restriction is happening. Yeah, yeah. Lean mass, you, you, you're leveraging the third fuel source that's only available when uh, glucose and fatty acids are not available. Which is not good. So that would be the same thing as if I just ate, you know, a, a big sandwich every day. I'd have high levels of glucose, therefore high levels of insulin, but I don't have enough calories and I don't have enough ketones to get my energy from ketones, right? Yeah. So therefore, I'm going to be catabolizing my lean muscle mass and lowering my metabolic rate. Yeah, I think I think both things are probably true. I think it's a reasonable strategy to get a regular DEXA scan. If if your GP wants you to take uh, fortnightly semaglutide, then I would talk to them about whether it's reasonable to treat metabolic syndrome with a drug that lowers HDL and increases insulin secretion. But if they still say out of an abundance of caution, I think you really should reduce your weight and this is the only way I think you can do it, then I would suggest it's a good idea to get a regular DEXA scan. Okay. Only because you want to be making sure that you're not cannibalizing lean lean tissue for, for that. Right. There was a study, which I will link in the show notes, into semaglutide that did DEXA scans of uh, treatment and, co- and control cohorts. So they had mm-hmm. 140 people and half of them got semaglutide and half of them got, you know, a, an injection of saline. Yeah. And according to Table S5 in the study that I'm going to show you, those on semaglutide lost 3.48% of body fat. And those on the placebo lost 0.19% of body fat. So obviously semaglutide is much more effective for these people trying to lose weight right. than not getting it than the saline. Okay. But the other thing is those on semaglutide lost uh, 3.04% of lean mass and those on the placebo lost 0.09% of lean mass. Oh. So as a ratio, those on semaglutide were drawing down more lean mass for their weight loss 
than those who are on the placebo. In this case, both groups were eating a calorie-restricted diet. Their habitual diet, minus 500 calories a day. Oh. So, you know. Okay. It's common in weight loss to lose both fat and lean tissue unless you're on a ketogenic diet. Right. I, I, on the first six months of my ketogenic diet, I lost a third of my body weight uh. and gained lean mass. <laughs> so, right. So, you know. Now, Ken, is there things you can do to, if you're on semaglutide, to increase your lean mass or like exercise? Does that work? Yeah. Exercise always works to build muscles. But lean mass is more than just muscles. It's right. all of the enzymes in your body. It's all of your connective tissue. I guess the question is, when catabolism happens, what goes first? Muscle, bone, tissue, or does it all happen at the same time? All of the above. What goes first? So we have a supply of, of amino acids called the labile pool. Now, that consists of just amino acids water-soluble amino acids in the blood. Yeah. It consists of enzymes that we don't need immediately now, but we haven't gotten around to, okay. to breaking down. It's all of the things that are optional, all of the uh, protein structures that are optional, and it comprises something like 1% of your total lean mass. Yeah. So we have that buffer uh, that we can utilize for short-term requirements. We can use protein for energy or use amino acids for energy in desperation. But it's really a situation where you don't have access to energy from other sources, from fuel, yeah. fuel energy from other fuels. And so my suspicion is that it's just tilting the – semaglutide is just tilting in the needle a little bit more towards utilizing more lean tissue as you lose weight. Now, there is lean tissue that's involved in being a bigger person. Right. I mean, when you're a larger person – Fat cells live in, in a matrix of collagen. Yeah, and we talked about this when we talk about fasting, right? That's right, yeah. So where does that protein come from? Yeah, so, I mean, you will be breaking down that collagen matrix that uh, your fat cells are, are holding your fat cells together. Hmm. And so there are safe amounts of lean loss, lean uh, tissue loss that you could that, that are reasonable. Okay. But I would want to get a DEX on a regular basis just to okay. just to make sure that it's not causing significant lean tissue loss. And the second concern that I have is that is about atherosclerosis. When insulin is high, macrophages uh, take oxidized LDL out of the blood. They the scavenger receptors increase by fourfold on the outside of macrophages that that are in your arterial wall, right. and they take these oxidized LDL particles out of circulation. They suck up all their contents. Uh -huh. And then when insulin goes low, they efflux that, those contents off into HDL. When you go on a low-carb diet, this is why HDL increases uh -huh. because you have more of those low levels of insulin that all of a sudden your macrophages can get rid of the cholesterol and fatty acids inside the LDL particles and get ready to next time insulin goes high to take out more LDL particles out of circulation. What happens when you don't have the insulin in the deer? Let's say you're a type 2 diabetic and you're eating donuts all the time and you eat a donut every hour for 23 hours a day. Kids, don't do this. Don't do this at home. This is not this is not a good idea. <laughs> this is a hypothetical situation. This is a hypothetical. <laughs> All right. So so what's going to happen is that uh, that your macrophages will always be trying to to find new sources of cholesterol from oxidized LDL and triglycerides from LDL, and they'll be able to utilize the triglycerides for energy because they're cells, they can use fatty acids, they have, they have mitochondria, but they'll never be able to get rid of their cholesterol, and that's what that's 
I believe is one of the reasons why arterial plucking occurs because uh, right. it, there's very few things you can do with cholesterol other than to put it into an HDL particle to be taken back to the liver and then to be defecated or turned into bile and defecated. That's the only way we get rid of cholesterol in our body. So my gut feel is not only that you should worry about increased lean tissue loss, but also uh, I have concerns about uh, this not being as effective as a low-carb diet when it comes to treating heart disease. So what if you're taking Ozempic or Wagovia or a semaglutide drug and you're eating a pure, well-formulated ketogenic diet? And that's what I'm doing. So we don't really know. Let's say that your natural tide of insulin from when you eat to between meals is like when you eat it's 100 and between meals it goes down to maybe four. That would okay. be really good. Most type 2 yeah. diabetics don't get much below 20. Right. Let's say you take semaglutide uh, now as well as the ketogenic diet. What does it mean if your low tide goes down to 12 instead of to 4? You still go to 100, but your lowest level is at 12. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know really uh, how much of an effect that that would have. Uh -huh. One diagnostic that would be interesting, much like a DEXA scan would tell you if you're losing lean tissue, your HDL circulating would probably tell you which is having the greater effect, whether it's the ketogenic diet ability to raise HDL, which is a good thing, mm -hmm. or semaglutide's uh, known uh, ability to lower HDL, which would be a bad thing. So I would just track my HDL before and after taking semaglutide and w as long as you do, and that's probably worth doing. So um, I'm looking at some blood work for me here, uh, recent blood work, and my HDL is 39, which is mm -hmm. low. It's mm -hmm. right on the border of what it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it before you took semaglutide? Do you have your longitudinal stuff? I, I can't tell you, but it's right on the border. Yeah. thirty-nine is a bit low. It is low. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. I think that's going to be an interesting question. And then finally, the problem everyone runs into with semaglutide as a treatment for weight loss is that you have to stay on it. Mm. Right. Yeah, you, know, you go you go off it and you look, gain all the weight back. This is what the NPR article says too. Right. Yeah, you know, and especially because if people suddenly there's a change in insurance and they can't afford to keep taking it, yeah, that could be catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can lose weight by just injecting insulin. Don't try this at home, kids. No, don't. <laughs> that's do not that. a healthy thing. You can also <laughs> lose weight by locking yourself in a barrel. But here's the thing, like I've always found on the ketogenic diet is that it just is difficult to get started, right? I'm not suggesting I'm going to do this, but hmm. um, maybe after a while of some weight loss and some blood sugar control, I go to my doctor and I say, okay, I think I'm ready to just switch over to a keto diet without this now. Right. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. I don't think there would be a lot of long-term effects from that other than... I mean, there's one long-term effect, which is a good effect, and that is you're starting from a lower weight, right? And you're you're more active, and you're more able to get to to get out and exercise, and so that's one benefit, right? And you're in you're you're in a deeper ketosis, right? I don't know whether you are on Zempic, whether whether you'd be in a deeper ketosis on Zempic. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you were, that'd be a good thing for being in Zempic's favor, and and the reason why is because it's a sign that you're utilizing fatty acids for energy, right? For me, everything comes down to what can I do that increases the ability for my cells to use fatty acids for energy? Uh -huh. um, 
Can I do it by not eating glucose? Yes. <laughs> can I do it by doing some exercise? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> but, you know, can I do it by not eating? No. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't think Zempic is going to help here for making myself more likely to burn fatty acids. Right. But I, I fully supported your choice to go on a Zempic. Uh-huh. I basically told you what I could know about it, uh-huh. being that I'm, you know, I, I don't have the internal documents that uh, Nova Nordisk have right. on their safety and efficacy trials. At some point, you have to trust that the FDA has required them to cross every T and dot every I. Yeah, we know how that goes. Well, yeah, but at some point you have to trust that some professionals have a reputation that they can't afford right. to, to lose. And so, right, right. Um, and that's why it's important not to stigmatize people working at the FDA by sure. saying you're all a bunch of whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, anyway. Okay. I fully supported your decision to get on it. I do tell people who ask me, should I do this for diabetes? I suggest they try a ketogenic diet first for the obvious reasons. Right. Yeah, yeah. It treats all the five symptoms of metabolic syndrome, not just two. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't take it and not eat a ketogenic diet. I certainly wouldn't do that. No, and I think a lot of people are. Yeah. A lot of people in Hollywood and Silicon Valley who are taking a Zampic are eating rubbish. Yeah. Is it possible that they are fooling themselves by being thin but getting worse? Uh-huh. It's, it's actually a worse outcome. If you have a problem, the best thing is to learn it early. Right. The worst thing with a bad health problem is to find out with a fatal heart attack or a fatal, mm-hmm. you know, a, a fatal event. So, right. So, I guess that wraps up our our diatribe a, on Ozempic, doesn't it? Sorry about the Debbie Downer. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. You know, the information is good. It's good to know. And I didn't realize this thing about cholesterol. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be, I, I'm going to get a DEXA scan. I'm going to watch that as well. Yeah. It's good to know how much lean mass you have. And yeah, I, I don't think weightlifting and exercising is necessarily going, it might increase your muscles at the cost of other lean tissue, but right. cosmetically it'll be fine. Cosmetically you'll be, sure. you'll be healthier. You'll be fitter, as they say. But at some point, you're going to have the bounce back that most caloric restriction diets provide. You won't be evolutionary fitter, but... (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, what did you have for dinner last night? Um, I had had spaghetti. (laughs) What? (laughs) Don't go crazy. It was very low-carb spaghetti. Okay. It's actually made with edamame, which is soy. Oh, no kidding. Pardon me for a moment. I'm just going to pause while half the audience's hair goes on fire because yeah. I'm having soy and now I'm and now I'm playing with my man boobs because okay. I've eaten all of these phytoestrogens. Right. So that's not shirataki uh, spaghetti, is it? It's it's not shirataki. It's not shirataki. It's actually a low carb spaghetti that's made from legumes. Oh, they do it by removing the starch. So okay. what you have left is a lot of the undigestible starches. Oh, I mean the total amount of spaghetti that I had was like two spoonfuls. Of spaghetti. Oh, wow. And it was a big, big old plate of chili. <laughs> it was nice. A, it was a bolognese sauce with a, just oh. a, with a, just a smattering of spaghetti. Nice. <laughs> just a little amuse bouche of spaghetti. <laughs> so I had this trick with the, with the spaghetti after I boil it. Uh, after I boil the spaghetti, uh, I, I tip, I, I put it through a sieve. So I tip out the water. The pan that it, it cooked in is still hot. It's still on the hob, still on the on the cooker. I put the spaghetti back into it, and I put a a, a whole handful of parmesan and some butter in it, 
Oh, man. And some sliced green onions. And I uh, stirred it around until all of the all of the parmesan sauces melted. Wow. That's my spaghetti. So my spaghetti is mostly butter and parmesan cheese. Ah, uh, that's terrible. I know, it's disgusting. So I, I have a recipe for you. That's not a recipe, but I have a recipe okay. for you. It's not really a recipe. It's more of a keto hack. Okay, sure. Do you want to hear a keto hack? Yeah, lay it on me. Have you ever tried wisps? Oh, those are cheese crisps, right? Yes, I have. Yeah. In Australia, you can get them from Costco. I'm sure you can get them from your Costco as well. Yeah, we get them from, yeah. So the other thing you can get at Costco is Baby Bells. Baby Bells is little eat and cheese in wax. Yeah, I know. You're addicted to those. I love those things. I used to see you popping those all the time. Yeah, I, I try to limit myself to like two a day. Yeah. Those are little cheese rounds, by the way. Little cheese rounds in wax. Yeah. And you have to pull off the wax, the little red right. wax. It's Edam cheese. So Yes. Um, you know, and they look like big Edams, but they're just little baby ones. Little ones. Little baby bills. Yeah. So um there was a promotion a couple of months ago with baby bills. So you buy baby baby bills in like a net bag, uh -huh. and inside the bag they had a little plastic plate. Huh. And it's the weirdest thing. This little plastic plate's covered with <laughs> covered with shrink wrap, and but it, it, <laughs> when you take the shrink wrap off, there's a little instruction saying take your baby bill, uh, take the wax off, put it in the little plastic plate, and put it in the microwave for thirty seconds. The plastic? Yeah, plastic. So it's plastic designed to survive. Hot temperatures. Okay. So you take this plastic, you put the baby bell in the plastic, you put it in the microwave, and it comes out and it's like fondue. It's like a baby bell is turned into melted cheese. Okay, wait a second. You're not saying microwave the wax, are you? Because that's what I picked up. No, no. Take the wax off, put it aside, throw it away. Take the wax off, put okay. the cheese Put the on cheese the on plate, the plate. Uh, on the little plate, little plastic plate that's designed for a microwave. I got it. And it's got okay. a little handle on the side, and so you stick it in the microwave, you give it 30 right. seconds or whatever so it was. So it comes out as fondue-ish. It comes out, it basically melts the baby bell to like a hot, cheesy mess. Wow. Delicious. Wow. Okay, so that's not the hack. And it doesn't separate? Like you don't get a pool of oil? You don't get a pool of oil. Oh, wow. A baby bell's got emulsifier in it. It's oh. basically- Okay. It's an industrially manufactured cheese. It's not the best of cheese. Yeah. Okay, well. So the hack is to save those plates. Now, you've got four little plates. The little plates, are, yeah. they're about uh, two and a half inches oh. uh, in diameter. They're little, little dishes. Okay. And so what you do is you buy some good cheese, not baby bells. That's bad cheese. <laughs> yeah. You buy good cheese, yeah, and you cut it up into half-inch cubes, okay, and you put the little cube of good cheese. Huh. I mean, really good cheese, not not sure. Yeah, I mean, aged cheddar, not not the rubbish. Yeah, and you put these little plates in the microwave. I put four of them in the microwave, hit it for a minute. When they come out, they are wisps. Oh, they have turned into wisps because they bubble and broil. Right, and the bubbles make the little holes in the wisps, and they come out as wisps, but with good cheese. Okay, so so not the rubbish. I like that idea. See, I usually make those in a cupcake tin in the in the oven. Yeah, you can do it in the oven. Yeah, but if you were to get a plastic cupcake tin. For this microwavable, mm. uh, for example, that's the trick. So one minute you got a wisp. Got one minute you got four wisps. Wow, and that's a nice little snacky snack. Okay, and so you can do it with like a little porcelain dishes or you know, yeah, something. Don't put any metal in the microwave. Don't, don't. Yeah, of course, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't put a 
a muffin tin in the microwave. Or your hamster. You'll see sparks. Or your, <laughs> or your cat. <laughs> Don't do that. There's some other things that you probably wouldn't want to put in a microwave, right? I have a list. Yeah, Next to the microwave. The list. <laughs> oh, man. So that's my recipe. Although I'd like to put Mr. Squirrel, who steals all the bird food in the microwave. That would be a... Uh, didn't oh, didn't you get a squirrel a squirrel uh, swirl twirl a squirrel a twirl a squirrel twirl a squirrel and then I got a book that shows you how to make a squirrel trebuchet. <laughs> <laughs> I never did that, but I would get some Schadenfreude out of seeing him in the microwave. Probably, maybe not. I wouldn't do that, of course. Of course. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. I guess that's it for for now. And uh, of course, if there are any more studies or urgent medical or scientific things that we think we need to tell you about, you'll hear it on Two Keto Dudes. If for any reason half the keto community's hair catches on fire all of a sudden, right? we will be back. <laughs> Until then. Until then. <laughs> keep calm and keto on, Richard. Keep calm, keto on, Carl. All right. And we'll talk to you next time. When there's an emergency. Right. On Two, Two Keto, keto Dudes. dudes.